Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club and a proud member. Today is November 13th. There's still a pandemic and we are still live from the studios of our public media partner, 90.3 WCPN IdeaStream. Very grateful for their partnership. On October 26th of this year, just a couple weeks ago, the American Jewish Committee released the results of its State of, Amer of State of Anti-Semitism in America report. It was the second time that report had been released, but this year the survey had been expanded and included parallel surveys of American Jews and the general public about anti-Semitism in the U.S. It was released on the eve of the second anniversary of the shooting at Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This was the first time a survey examined the perceptions of both American Jews and the general public, and we'll get into the results, but it's worth saying at the outset that the perceptions are not always aligned. Today we'll talk with two leaders from the AJC involved in the design and analysis of the report. We'll talk about its findings and what they mean for efforts to combat anti-Semitism and why this matters even if you're not Jewish. Joining us is Dan Elbaum. He's AJC's chief advocacy officer. He leads the organization's advocacy efforts to advance its mission to combat anti-Semitism, protect Israel's security and legitimacy, and promote human dignity. Also joining us is Holly Huffnagel, the AJC's U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism. She spearheads the organization's response to anti-Semitism in the United States and its efforts to better protect the Jewish community. If you have questions for Ms. Elbaum or, uh, Mr. Elbaum or Ms. Huffnagel, please text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. We'll work them into the program. Dan Elbaum and Holly Huffnagel, welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. Thank you. It's good to be Thank here. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you both with us. Dan Elbaum, I want to start with you. Um, what's, why are we doing this survey? Why did this survey need to be done? So that was my question around a year ago. So a colleague of Holly and mine came to me and said, we need to ask American Jews how they're feeling about anti-Semitism. And there's no better time to draw awareness as the one-year anniversary of the tragic Pittsburgh synagogue slaying occurred. And my instinctive reaction was, I'm sure this has been done. Somebody has asked these questions. I, I, I've been with the American Jewish Committee for, for 11 years. I, I, I am sure at some point someone has asked American Jews their views on anti-Semitism. And I knew surveys had been conducted in Europe a year or two before. And the answer was it hadn't been done. These questions had never been asked. And we were seeing so many debates and so many different versions and visions of what is anti-Semitism and people purporting to speak for American Jews on this issue. So that's what we did. And a year ago on the anniversary of the Pittsburgh slain, we released those survey findings. And then as the second anniversary came up, Holly correctly pointed out that 98% of the country wasn't Jewish. Uh, it would be perhaps important to find out what they think as well. <laughs> so, Holly Huffnagel, when you, you came on board uh, at the AJC in between the, um, the first survey and this year's survey and gave it a bit of an upgrade, 
um, it, as Dan tells the story, it sort of seems obvious uh, that it'd be worth asking the other 98% of Americans. Um, was it that obvious at the time? So it's a good question. So I, I'm not Jewish, Dan, and I work only on issues related to anti-Semitism. And from my perspective, I felt like we really did need to know what Americans were thinking. You know, Pittsburgh was a wake-up call for American Jews that the anti-Semitism they had been seeing on the rise in Europe had, had come home, was rising here in the U.S. But we didn't really know if it was a wake-up call for the U.S. general public. We have incident data showing the rise. We know there's been a 150% increase in the last five years. The FBI data shows us this. But was the general public aware of this rise? And what we found was was not really. Let's, um, before we dive into the specific uh, findings, let's define what it is that we're talking about when we say the word anti-Semitism. Holly Huffnagel, um, how do we understand, what is, how should people understand that word? Because I, I'm willing to bet that there are people listening right now or watching on our live stream that don't actually really know what anti-Semitism is. I know, Dan, you said we're not going to get into the data, but I want to release one point because okay. it frames this question. Yes. And that was the very first question we asked the general public. How familiar are you with the term anti-Semitism? And we found that 46%, so nearly half of, of the American population, wasn't really familiar with it. 21% had never heard the term before, and 25% had heard it but didn't know what it meant. So there is a big unfamiliarity uh, amongst the general public. And I think that has to do a little bit with the word itself. It's you know, very kind of scientific sounding. But we define anti-Semitism as, as being more than just a hatred of Jews, but really a certain perception of Jews. And, and this is important because anti-Semitism is also connected to stereotypes and conspiracy theories about um, Jewish control or power or, or wealth, where Jews are actually assailed um, for you know those things instead of just um, like other forms of racism where they might be seen as inferior. It's, it's actually that combination of, of things. And I think that's really important to understand. Um, many people will actually invoke anti-Semitic tropes and not realize it and say, well, I don't hate Jews. So therefore what I said was anti-Semitic, whether it be about the control or power piece. And so it's very important to, to understand the broader umbrella, if you will, of what, of what anti-Semitism covers. Holly Huffnagel is U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism at the American Jewish Committee. Uh, Dan Elbaum, Chief Advocacy Officer there, is with us as well. And I want to take just a, a quick second to just mention that we, you know, reached out to the AJC to talk to discuss this report at a City Club Friday Forum because um, we are focused on conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. And this is an ancient form of hatred and uh, not unlike other forms of hatred that are standing in the way of a thriving democracy. And, um, and the results of the survey are fairly surprising. And it's important, you know, in order to solve problems, we have to sort of understand them. So Dan Elbaum, as you were looking at the results of this year's survey and the previous year's survey, I mean, what are the, what are the things that jump out to you? So, so there are many things, but if I'm just going to try to give three to give make it very succinct, and, and I'll, I'll speak in broad generalities, and then Holly will politely correct me or, other, or, or give some more nuance to some of them. But if you, if you want to go to my personal three takeaways from the survey, the first is that American Jews are very scared of anti-Semitism. And as Holly said, many Americans don't even know what the term means. So we face an American Jewish community where 88% uh, 
think that anti-Semitism is a serious problem. They think it's gotten worse in the last few years. And when you look at non-Jewish Americans or Americans writ large, they do not have the same concept of the problem. My number two takeaway would be that it's more than American Jews simply thinking that this is a problem. It's, it's affecting the American Jewish community in a very real way. And, and what do I mean when I say that? I mean that one out of three American Jews has avoided going to a Jewish institution or a location like that out of fear for their own personal safety. And one, or four has hidden their, one out of four has hidden his or her identity, whether online or in, within a conversation or within a decision of, of, of um, what to wear, whether it be a, a Jewish star necklace or, or a skull cap or something else like that, out of fear of anti-Semitism. And you take a step back from that and you think that in the year 2020, in a nation, and I want to be very clear about this, that I don't want to be alarmist at all, there is no nation that has been more hospitable and better for the Jewish people than America. There is no country where, Amer where Jews have thrived to the extent that we have in America. Yet to still see American Jews saying that they have hidden their identity, and by the way, and I don't often get surprised by these numbers, this did, those numbers are higher among younger American Jews. Yet more, this is not a, a relic of, of Holocaust survivors or people who, who are who were, this is a fresher memory for them. This is people under 25 saying in even higher numbers that they've hidden their identity. That is something that you know was, was sobering to me, and I hope this audience very much tries to internalize as we do. And very quickly, number three, and again, this is, was a surprise for me, is that many Americans don't believe that Jewish opinions on anti-Semitism need to be considered. It was, I believe, Holly, again, you'll tell me if I'm off, I think it was 63% um, who said that if it, not that they would give American Jews the, the, the sole ability to say what anti-Semitism is, but whether they would consider American Jewish views in saying something is anti-Semitic, 63% said uh, that they wouldn't. And I think it was 7% said or 8% said it would make them less likely to consider something anti-Semitic. So as an advocate, as someone who works for the American Jewish Committee, as someone whose organization's mission is to fight anti-Semitism, there was sobering and somber information here for us to digest in terms of how we take this battle to winning the hearts and minds of the American people on the issue. Holly Huffnagel, I want to drill down on the piece that um, that Dan Elbaum just spoke to, the second, the second piece that young Jews have hidden their identity or are more likely or have expressed a, a, a surprising uh, fear about anti-Semitism and have, have had to you know, or have, have chosen to hide their Jewish identity in order to not provoke anti-Semitism out of fear of anti-Semitism. What's going on there? So this is a very good question. Um, I actually think has a lot to do with the fact that young American Jews today are, are actually on the, the recipient end of, of all the major sources of anti-Semitism. So when we see anti-Semitism coming from the far right, uh, from the from the far left, from you know religious extremists, including Islamist extremists, especially at the crux of whether they be on campus in high school or in college and on social media, this is where we're really seeing you know all of these sources is collide and and they're really receiving receiving this. And I wanted to mention one of the points that that Dan uh, said that Dan said. Um, we had a survey in 2019 and 2020 that just looked at American Jews' attitudes. And one of the other significant pieces of our report is something called trend data, trend data to where we're able to compare 
what people responded to, how they responded in 2019 versus 2020. And only a year has gone by. Now, it's been quite the year, um, but we wanted to see if anything's changed. And we actually found to the question, you know, do you avoid certain places, events, or situations out of your concern or safety or comfort as a Jew? That number was one in four, 25% in 2019. This year, it was 31%, so almost one in three, just in one year. But that number went to 38% for young uh, American Jews between the ages of 18 and 29. So almost one in, uh, almost four in 10 young American Jews uh, have avoided um, a place because of their concern for uh, safety as a Jew. It's a really interesting bit of data because the stories that we tell ourselves about demographics, multiculturalism, diversity, and inclusivity in America is that we are trending towards a more diverse, more inclusive, more multicultural uh, community, set of communities across the country, a more multicultural and more accepting society. Um, and yet this data seems to belie that. Yeah, I, th I think that's absolutely correct. And I'll say look, no, go ahead, Holly. Holly, go, Holly Huffnagel, go ahead. I was just going to add. I was going to add one one small small point on that is, um, I think it has a lot to do with with where whether Jews feel accepted in some of these you know more progressive movements and, and unfortunately in, in this time we've seen many who are who are rightly advocating on platforms of anti racism unfortunately being the ones who are saying that you know Jews can't define anti-Semitism or because a more majority of Jews believe that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state are now left out of some of these you know diverse inclusive spaces and that's also a big challenge that we're facing right now Dan Elbaum the Cleveland community and the and the various communities that make up Greater Cleveland um, are sort of fortunate to have had very strong Jewish communities um, that actually are sort of influential around the country in some ways. And the you know we've had Jewish leaders who were a part of the the movement to create the state of Israel, Rabbi Moses Greece for one, and 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 Hillel Silver for another, um, and um, but. And so we may be in a little bit of a bubble. What, I guess what I'm getting at is that Clevelanders will be like, really? There's a, this is a thing? I didn't realize this was a problem. But the rest of the nation is pretty different, I suppose. Yeah. Look, I mean, I think it exists everywhere. And we didn't see a we, we, we have some sampling of different, geogra uh, different geographic locations. And we didn't see hugely different answers from Jews uh, in, in different communities. But I do think it's easy to be in a bubble. Look, this is my... This is my life's work. Uh, this is something that I'm, I'm actively committed on. And I have to admit, when I when I heard about the question of hiding identity, I was not sure we should bring it, bring it, put it in the survey because I wasn't sure about its relevance today. I, we had seen it in European surveys where these numbers are considerably higher, where it is sometimes an act of public bravery to identify as a, as a Jew in certain areas of Europe. I wasn't sure how relevant it was to the American experience. And what I thought about, and I, and, I, and I personalized it, was my mother, the daughter of Holocaust survivors born in a refugee camp, who when I go there for Shabbat dinner, Sabbath dinner on Friday night, and I leave, will tell me, make sure you take off your kippah, your yarmulke, your, your, your Jewish skullcap, that, that, and, I, and I would always tease her, like, there's no Cossacks on, on the, the drive home, I'm, I'm going to be okay. And what the survey tells me is not to worry as much about my mother's opinion, but my children's opinion, uh, who, are, who are 16 and 13. And it led me to ask them if they've ever hidden their identity online. And I was shocked as somebody who, you know, as kids who are very conscious of anti-Semitism, 
being fortunate enough to have me as a father, for better or for worse for them, that this is a topic they talk about a lot. This is something I didn't know uh, about what, how they identified on some of these issues. Holly Huffnagel, the, um, the survey identifies sources, some sources of anti-Semitism or perceptions of where the anti-Semitism is coming from as um, coming from essentially three places, uh, the far right, the far left, and Islamic extremism. Um, can you sort of parse that out for us? Absolutely. So AJC, we really do focus on the, the, the three main sources of anti-Semitism. And we asked American Jews, which source, you know, do they, did they perceive as a threat, a very serious threat, a threat, not at all, somewhat of a threat, not at all a threat. And what we found was that 89% of American Jewish respondents said that the extreme political right uh, poses a threat to American Jews. And 49% said it was a very serious threat. So that was the highest number, the, the far right, this, the white supremacists, the white nationalists in America. And I think our data aligns with that, that, that fear, that perception. When it comes to Islamist extremists, we found that 85% um, said it was a threat, uh, with 27% saying it was a very serious threat. And then when we asked about the far political left, 61% said it was a threat, with 16% with saying it's a very serious threat. So you do see um, you know, the majority of, of Jews seeing the, the far right as a more dangerous threat than the far left. But I'll be clear, I think it's very important that we don't you know, get single-sided on just one source. We have to be you know, swivel-headed about how we see the sources and make sure we're fighting anti-Semitism on all sides. And uh, for clarity's sake, when, we, when, when you talk about Islamic extremism as a source of anti-Semitism, this is not a broad brush you're painting with in terms of um, the, the, you're talking about a very specific and small subset of people who profess to practice Islam. Oh, absolutely. And I, sorry if I didn't, wasn't clear. It's, I, we say Islamist with an IST at the end, extremism or extremism. I think the actual question on the survey was extremism in the name of, in the of, name Islam. of Islam. So, I mean, I, I, yes, I'm even thinking to today is the, the, fifth, the five year um, commemoration of the, the attacks at the Bataclan in Paris, where over 130 people were killed. Um, and that was an example of an Islamist um, uh, attack. And of course, uh, well, not of course, but unfortunately, the Jewish community in Paris was actually attacked before that, the hypercache attacks in, in January of, of that same year. And so something that we do note is, you know, it might start with the Jews, with Jews and Jews being attacked, but it doesn't end with Jews. And it does extend to broader society, which is what we saw in Paris uh, or um, with the Bataclan attacks five years ago. Holly Huffnagel is U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism at the AJC. Dan Elbaum, Chief Advocacy Officer there as well. If you have questions for either of them, please, about this survey, which you can find online. The results have been, have been published. Um, uh, this survey about anti-Semitism. You can text your questions to 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794 to text your questions or tweet them at the City Club. We'll work them into the program. Holly Huffnagel, you mentioned before that you're not Jewish, um, and uh, and I'm curious as to if you could talk a little bit about why this has become so important to you as somebody who isn't Jewish. Absolutely, um, I I came to this field, and uh, so I'm, I'm my background's a Christian. I, I grew up a, a Christian in, in Southern California. Um, I still go to church regularly, so I you know consider myself religious. I came at this topic of combating anti-Semitism through the lens of the Holocaust and what 
almost 2,000 years of Christian anti-Judaism, how that set the stage for the Holocaust to happen in Europe. And there was some, my own responsibility feeling that I wanted to be involved in, in ensuring that, um, you know, the Jewish community around the world was protected, um, something like the Holocaust wouldn't happen again, and just kind of doing, doing my part, if you will, that's like my, my personal story. But I think, and I don't want to speak for, 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 for all non-Jews, but I, I, I do want to make a case that um, combating anti-Semitism isn't not a problem for, for only Jews to solve. It really is a societal problem. And I can't help um, but thinking right now at this time of um, the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs' uh, quote, um, he's a real intellectual giant who just passed away last week. Um, he said that Jews cannot fight anti-Semitism alone. The, the victim cannot cure the crime. The hated cannot cure the hate. So really the onus is on non-Jews. And I, I think if we look at anti-Semitism and we break it down to its core, what is it? It's, it's irrationality, it's hostility, it's blame, it's distrust, it's conspiracy. And if you have rising levels of anti-Semitism in a country, citizens espousing these beliefs, um, that's going to be reflective of, 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 of a societal ill, right? Um, that's going to be a threat to democracy, democratic values, human rights, our freedoms, freedom of religion, assembly, our right to liberty. So I think when we talk about combating anti-Semitism, we really do need to broaden it out. And it's not just because, you know, we want, well, we do want Jews to live in safety and security as, as their, you know, you know, God-given right, but it's about much more. And that's why non-Jews need to be involved with this fight as well. Holly Hoffnagel, could you talk a little bit about the, the, the th tropes you earlier mentioned, sometimes people will reference tropes that they won't even realize are anti-Semitic. Could you talk a little bit about the, the sorts of things that people might hear in casual conversation and not really realize that, they're, um, that the person they're speaking with is actually engaging in anti-Semitism, who may or may not be aware of it themselves? Right. Um, so this is one of the reasons why AJC is, is actually publishing a, um, a, a major glossary, a resource of anti-Semitic terms and tropes. Um, it's called Translate Hate. Um, our, our latest version will be coming out in a few weeks. And, you know, we have, you know, 35, almost 40 tropes and terms of, of, of when these things can be anti-Semitic. And I, I have to be careful with that. I, just because someone makes a reference to um, even George Soros or the Rothschilds or, or some, that doesn't necessarily inherently mean it's anti-Semitic. It's, it's how it's used. It's the context. Is that person a stand-in for, for all Jews and, and looking at, you know, Jewish power c control or um, Jewish money being used in certain ways, which, again, unfortunately, we've seen during the, the election cycle. And so I, I do think that um, the, the, the broader American public understands the hostility piece. They understand racism. They might understand anti-Jewish racism as when Jews are being treated as, as inferior, which is something we especially see on, on the far right. Um, but I think what's less known is that when Jews, they're actually assailed um, because they're perceived, perceived as quote unquote superior. Um, and this is what makes anti-Semitism different than any other form of hatred and bigotry. It's, it's you know, attacking Jews because of their perceived power or wealth or control. Uh, and that's that's something that's not um, not as well known and something that we need to continually um, be explaining uh, and raising awareness. To put a finer point on it, Dan Elbaum, the, the, you sometimes hear in conspiracy theories and in the ways in which people talk about, say, the, the Black Lives Matter protests, that they involve paid pro protesters who are being paid by George Soros. <laughs> Right. As if George Soros right. is directly writing a check to some some group of protesters who is then rioting. Um, can you sort of unpack those kinds of conspiracy theories for me? 
So look, it's there is probably no weightier charge that we can use at the American Jewish Committee than to say something is anti-Semitic. And we try to be very, very careful about it, not just in political context, but another incredibly important example is, is criticism of Israel, where I think a real disservice is done to both Israeli advocacy and to, um, and to the fight against anti-Semitism when the term is misapplied. Nonetheless, with certain things like George Soros on occasion, although look, George Soros spends money on, on different things to, as he has the right as an American citizen to do to try to influence uh, the American body politic in the way he sees fit, as, as do many others. So there are times when it gets close to the line and there are times, quite frankly, when it goes over the line. Uh, I was just having a very interesting conversation with one of our colleagues in Washington, D.C. and We were discussing an ad that had been used to target a Jewish candidate in the last days of the campaign and it involved the use of money bags and um, and the candidate was Jewish. And I was trying to see it objectively. And, and it had sort of an image of Chuck Schumer, who is a senator from New York, but also in charge of helping raise money. And I was trying to see, like, am I being overly sensitive to this? Like, yes, there is money. Yes, there is a very stereotypical looking Jew. And they had made Chuck Schumer look even more Jewish if such a thing is possible uh, behind him. and. I was like, it was sort of looming there. I'm like, am I overly reading into this? And my colleague in Washington said, Dan, I've seen six of these ads in various forms. They've only appeared against Jewish candidates. Like there, there's money being spent across the board in this election. Like this is the sixth time I've seen it. It's only been for a Jewish candidate. So at that point, like one draws a very obvious conclusion that certain imagery is being used here. And does every reader of it understand implicitly that this is an anti-Semitic canard? You know, some do, some don't, but it's powerful enough and it's doing something that they believe it's helping their candidate during these days. Another very old, very old, a couple thousand year old trope about Jews is the blood libel trope. Holly Huffnagel, when, when people start talking, use that phrase, blood libel, what do they mean? So the, the, we, we actually have a, a, a purported case of, of the blood libel, actually, I think, in fourth century Syria. But um, the, the, the most well-known case, the first case, was in the 12th century um, in England. Is William of Norwick is, is the, really the first documented case of blood libel. And what it is is an anti-Semitic accusation that um, Jews, again, it, 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 when you say it out loud, it sounds crazy, but here, here it goes, um, that, that, that Jews need the blood of Christian children um, for for ritual purposes, so for instance, to make um, uh, Passover matzah, and really what it was done because there was other cases of of blood libel, and it was usually young boys who were who were kidnapped or who couldn't you know were, were lost, and it was to explain otherwise unexplained deaths in children, blaming the Jewish communities for this, and um, it, it, many Jews were killed, thousands of Jews were killed because of these false charges. And look, a modern day version. You know, like, look, and as I said, criticism of Israel, like any nation could be legitimate, but an allegation that Israel is harvesting Palestinian children's mm -hmm. organs in order to give them to Israelis or that uh, or a cartoon of Benjamin Netanyahu eating a Palestinian child, which we see all the time within the Mideastern press. Like those types of things are playing on certain images that which crosses the line beyond mm -hmm. criticism into the conspiracy theories. And these conspiracy theories as well. I mean, we've seen the, the emergence of the whole QAnon world. Um, and I, I hesitate to even bring it up because who wants to give them more oxygen? But there is a they're 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 trafficking. They're certainly trafficking in a number of anti-Semitic tropes.
Absolutely. unquestionably. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the the other one, the other ancient piece too, Holly Huffnagel has to do with the crucifixion of um, of Jesus. That is sometimes uh, or has has been seen as blame or as sort of blamed on the Jews, which is and also abs- a misreading of the Gospels. Right. And so, I mean, yes, I'm glad you added that last piece. It's, I, I sometimes feel like it's my duty as a Christian to look at that, that historical context as Jewish authors writing to other Jews and what that means, but it's how it's been interpreted. And I, we can say definitively that there's probably no other Bible verse than, you know, Matthew uh, uh, chapter, like, uh, I think it's 25, 27 or 27, 25, which, which says, you know, the, the blood, his blood will be on us and our children's children. When Pontius Pilate is washing his head of, of, of washing his hands and saying, you know, do you want Jesus crucified? And, and, and the Jews, the quote unquote Jews that were in the, the courtyard said, you know, yes, and to crucify him. And it's, it's been blamed that, you know, Jews are responsible from, from that point all the way to perpetuity of, for, for Jesus's death. And this is called the deicide charge or the killing of of God. And uh, in 1965, the Catholic Church made a real historic um, uh, document, published an historic document called Nostra Aetate, which means in our time. And of the many things that it did, uh, it looked at the Catholic Church's relationship with Jews and it decried the, the deicide charge and anti Semitism and uh, recognized that the role that that charge played even leading up into the Holocaust. And the last thing I'll, I'll mention on the deicide charge, because I think what um, Dan Elbaum said in, in connection to some of these ancient medieval Christian, Christian European tropes being reused and recycled um, in the Middle East. And this has a history actually going back even, to, even before Hitler and some of the Arab partnerships that Hitler had in the Second World War with a lot of Nazi propaganda. But we do see the DSI charge being used um, as an, you know, as an inappropriate and anti-Semitic expression of, of what's happening, where, where um, a, Palest- the Pal- a Palestinian or the state of Palestine or Palestinian Christians will be seen as Jesus. And you have an IDF, uh, an Israeli Defense Force soldier, um, you know, trying to, to, to kill Jesus or crucify Jesus and the line saying, you know, don't crucify us or him again. And that's just, it's, it's incredibly um, inappropriate, anti-Semitic. And we know where those, you know, that, that, that charge has led to. And, and that's what we have to call it out now when we see it. And it's, it's always struck me, I mean, just to underscore the, the sort of the biblical telling of the story that Pontius Pilate seemed to be the one with the power there. Um, he really could have done whatever he wanted to. <laughs> um, we're talking with Holly Huffnagel. She's the U.S. Director for Combating Anti-Semitism at the AJC. That's the American Jewish Committee. Dan Elbaum uh, is her colleague there, Chief Advocacy Officer at the AJC. And if you have questions about this, uh, the current state of anti-Semitism, text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and we will work them in. Holly Huffnagel, um, in recent this question uh, from uh, our audience in a recent op-ed, you wrote, anti-Semitism fundamentally is not only a Jewish problem, it is a societal one. It is a reflection on the declining health of our society. What did you mean by that? So I'm glad you asked that question. I think I kind of addressed it earlier with this idea that when anti-Semitism is rising, so anti-Semitism is actually called a barometer. Um, sometimes people will say it's the canary in the coal mine, right? So, you know, they first they came for the Jews, but, you know, who, who else is kind of next um, in line? And we actually can see some of those connections. Uh, I mentioned earlier the um, hypercaché supermarket attack um, where Jews were targeted in France. And then, a little, you know, several months later, wh- wider Western society was attacked 
Um, same with what happened in Brussels. If we look to the Brussels Jewish Museum shooting in 2014, where Jews were targeted, in 2016, in March, there was the airport attacks. And it's really, it's what's starting with the Jews is, is going beyond just the Jewish community and it's attacking Western um, values, our democracy, um, you know, liberalism, if you will, equal rights, human rights. And that's why when we talk about anti-Semitism being a societal problem, it's really about, you know, what matters to us as a society? What are we rooted in? What are our foundations? You know, what are our values? And when we are allowing anti-Semitism to, to, to fester, to grow, to, to not be combated actively and to lower those levels, you know, what's going to happen next? It's really the, the beginning, I think, of something much worse. And we've actually seen that throughout history. Um, so that, that's what I meant by, by that comment. Thank you. Dan Elbaum, could you talk about the tools that are currently being used to spread and generate anti-Semitism, both here and abroad? Specifically, is social media giving undue influence to extremists, or is it being promoted in more traditional venues? So you find a venue, it's being promoted there. But unquestionably, social media plays a huge role in its promotion. And that has actually been a large focus for us, and specifically for Holly, of working with the mainstream social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, which obviously connected with Facebook, um, to talk about their content. And really what we've seen is a remarkable shift in terms of how they're looking there. There, there, are, there are miles to go before we sleep, I think, till we have a meeting in the minds on some of these issues. But whereas a few years ago, the arguments were pretty much uh, of a complete abdication of responsibility of this is an open marketplace of ideas and those ideas can flourish and the good ones will rise as Holly very you know, eloquently said to several members of Congress and other parliamentarians, uh, we've learned that's not the case, that, that, that some other things are rising as well, and that the social media engines themselves have a First Amendment responsibility for what speech they want to be responsible right. for being on their platform. So that is a, a gradual and very important evolution. I will say one of the dangers highlighted by this survey, and there are several dangers of anti-Semitism certainly out there in, in Pittsburgh and Poway, those, those need no further explanation. But I think one of the dangers that is out there is something you touched on earlier, and that is the notion that Americans are digesting certain anti-Semitic tropes, be it through mm -hmm. social media, political ads, conventional, and are sort of digesting and they're failing to recognize them as such, and they're passing them along, sometimes unknowingly, sometimes with a wink and a smile, into our general discourse. Um, and that, I think is highlighted by the survey by some of the answers, questions of what Jews considered anti-Semitic versus what regular what Americans considered anti-Semitic. And um, I think it's important for us to digest, especially when we remember that what Americans said is that they're not particularly interested in the Jewish opinion of what anti-Semitism is. So it doesn't matter so much to many Americans what I say at the American Jewish Committee. What I've got to get to is the different what we've got to get to is different religious leaders, opinion leaders, political leaders, and have those conversations with them so that they can be our character witnesses, so they can be our ambassadors on these issues, because we are in need of those outside allies to really take this fight and to, and to really make it a meaningful one. Um, you know, Holly, uh, Holly Huffnagel, Dan Elbaum just referenced the international convening that you spoke at uh, earlier this week. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening internationally between our congressional representatives and their counterparts in Canada and elsewhere? Definitely. And this is actually an exciting announcement. Um, and 
It started a few years ago, uh, at least, and there has been a rise, an alarming increase in anti-Semitic incidents around the globe, not just in the United States, but in, in, in other countries as well, and with many originating online. And the realization that social media posts do not stop at international borders, uh, members of national legislatures, so including the United States, Australia, Canada, Israel, and um, the United Kingdom, came together so you know, across the Atlantic to launch something called the Interparliamentary Task Force uh, to combat online anti-Semitism. And they, this, so it was just in September, so just a little over a month ago, they, they launched this task force. And their first inaugural meeting um, was on Tuesday of, of, of this week. So they, they heard from representatives of, of two Jewish organizations per country, and we were able to share recommendations. So AJC was actually one of the, the, the two uh, U.S.-based uh, Jewish organizations to give uh, recommendations to this task force. And, and, and we gave them four, four recommendations for how they can go forward and better combat um, anti-Semitism online. Um, yeah, and I'm sorry, just to, yeah. just to very quickly add, if it's okay, mm -hmm. and I, I think it's very important when talking to an audience um, like, like the City Club, one of the true bastions of free speech in America, and especially as we're on radio, that the, the principles of the First Amendment have no stronger advocate than the American Jewish Committee. And I think the Jewish people, perhaps more than any other minority, have, have flourished under those freedoms in a way, and, and, and they need to be protected. I, I don't want anything that Holly or I said to, to be interpreted in any other way. That being said, I, I do think there are, and by, this comes up all the time in our conversations with our European colleagues and European interlocutors, if you Americans didn't have this pesky First Amendment rights, like a lot of these things can be addressed in, in different ways. And we have to be just very vigilant and very honest about the different ways we approach those issues. That being said, there's always been the acceptance of, you know, it's not an absolutist type thing, that there are certain warnings, there's certain responsibilities that carry along with those rights. And that's really what we've been trying to emphasize to the social media companies. You know, with the social media companies, this follow-up question came in about alt-right platforms, Parler and Reddit and others. Well, Reddit is really a, an everything platform, I suppose. But um, there are these this emergence of these alt-right platforms. Are you reaching out to the places where the conversation is moving in this kind of post-election era? Dan Elbaum, I'll take a stab at this, and I also want to say thank you to, to, to Dan Elbaum's uh, clarification of, of what I was saying in the sense that, yes, we, we're very much um, supportive of, of the first Well, we were both saying. It wasn't just We were yet. both saying. <laughs> <laughs> Although what I will say, though, um, to, to, to the Dans, is, is that our survey found that 24% of American Jews have have avoided posting content online that would identify them as Jewish or their views on Jewish issues in the last two years. So in very concrete terms, one in four American Jews actually feel intimidated and chilled from speaking online. And, you know, the platforms aren't equal free speech playing fields, if you will. And so it is a different world online um, that we have to grapple with First Amendment free speech issues, knowing that there are groups who, who don't have that equal opportunity to express themselves. So I think that's important to note. This is a great question about the non-mainstream platforms. Um, that was one of my recommendations. So we, we, we recommended four things. One thing was... Um, uh, having the task force encourage big tech companies uh, to use a universal understanding definition of what anti-Semitism is. So they're, you know, all on the same page. We talked about tech transparency. We talked about a system to gather data quickly um, to, to where our own apolitical body of experts could monitor algorithms, analyze algorithms, and, and 
for the, the task force to actually have their own information instead of listening to the, the tech platform representatives tell them how, how their algorithms are operating or not and, and really use their own information. But the fourth, the fourth recommendation is this exact question. Um, we asked the tech platforms to focus on non-mainstream platforms, and that's because today anti-Semitic radicalization is, is not happening as much on the mainstream platforms, and because given the shift that Dan mentioned, uh, um, that they are responding to, to public pressure, to public embarrassment, um, and fringe platforms such as um, 8Kun, which used to be 8chan, that's where really where QAnon is, is, now, is now based. Um, this is where anti-Semitic anti um, rhetoric, um, vitriol, uh, hate, encouragement to violence, incitement to violence, these are the sites that um, John Ernest, the, the killer in Poway, was using. This is where it's coming from. And it's also, um, a lot of these sites aren't even hosted in the United States anymore. So extremism is a business, right? So it's generating content and, and views. And so there's always going to be an open host for, for business. So we go to the Philippines or you go to you know, for, for former Soviet republics. And these are the places that um, are now hosting some of these these sites and so we think that one really important unique role of this task force as an international body of lawmakers is actually to be able to work with these governments that are hosting some of these really far-right um, you know horrific uh, cesspools if you will and these fringes of, of the internet which we want to keep them on the fringe but what we saw with QAnon is it leaving the fringe entering the mainstream and I think that's what's so dangerous is we really need to focus on these on these fringe platforms as the, this questioner asked. Here's another question for you that is something that comes up a lot. Um, can you address the often stated opinion that uh, the often stated opinion of some that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic? Yes, so it's yes, not. we can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that, so let, 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 let's start there. Um, is, is that Israel, like any nation, uh, is subject to, to fair and legitimate criticism. And obviously, I understand. I'm, I'm not trying to play with words at all. Like sometimes that criticism is harsh. Sometimes it is stinging. Sometimes, in my opinion, as somebody who's, who comes to this from a very staunchly pro-Israel perspective, it is unfair, it is unfounded, it is, it is untrue. Uh, that being said, that does not make it anti-Semitic. And those who call that type of criticism of a nation's policies or steps a nation does, those who label it as anti-Semitic, do a incredible disservice to the fight against anti-Semitism. They, they make the term less relevant. They make the term less important. They politicize the issue needlessly. And if it was in my power to stop them, which it is not, I, I would do that. But, but certainly we have tried at the American Jewish Committee to never lend our voices to those types of attacks. That being said, like part of the debate in our country is when does that criticism cross the line from legitimate criticism of a country's policy to the demonization of a country, to targeting of a country because it's Jewish, to questioning the loyalty of Americans who do defend Israel in some type of way. And that is when it does cross the line into anti-Semitism. And we need to be very careful. We, we need to make sure that we have our ducks in a row when we levy that type of charge. But we do need to levy it when it does happen in that type of situation. Uh, it is a very confusing area. Um, particularly yeah. when, um, I mean, you, you just mentioned the idea of loyalty, that um, the, this anti-Semitic idea that loyalty to Israel, that American Jews are more loyal, loyal to Israel than they are to America, which is um, not true, and, um, but, is, but that hasn't stopped leaders in our country, such as the President of the United States, from implying that it is. Yeah, and to be fair, those on the, on the other side of the aisle have also made problematic statements and, and need to be also called out. But it's the president has stumbled on this, or depending on your views of the president, maybe not stumbled, maybe marched proudly 
into some of that type of language. Um, I, I'm remembering a conversation in front of a Jewish audience when he referred to Prime Minister Netanyahu as your prime minister uh, on, on more than one occasion. And also another occasion when he said that Jews who didn't vote for him were disloyal, although at first it was unclear whether he meant loyal to him or loyal to Israel. But nonetheless, like either way, was was somewhat problematic. And both times we had to well, speak out, which is not the easiest thing for any organization to do. But we, we, we made the decision to do it. I will say that the right doesn't have a monopoly on that type of language, and we've seen it on the other side. And look, it's, I think it's important for the American Jewish Committee to call it out. I would say it is, you know, with, with due deference and respect to, I guess, ourselves, like it is a hundred times more important that those on the right call this out when it occurs on the right and those on the left call it out when it occurs on the left. That is what is going to create meaningful change. And those voices have not been as vocal on either side as certainly they could be. Certainly not in public, in private more so, but private only does so much for us on those things. Another question from our audience, uh, and if you have a question, please text it to 330-541-5794 or tweet it at the City Club. We'll work it in. Holly Huffnagel, do you think that the younger Jewish population's fear comes from the BDS movement on many college campuses? BDS, of course, referring to boycott, divest, and sanction. Uh, a movement that has sort of targeted the nation of Israel. So we actually were able to ask specific questions about the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement on our survey, and we are able to to look at the data and do do the breakdown of by age um, into, into the 18 to 29 year old category, which is when the majority of of students are spending their time on campus or campus life. I, I do think there's there's some connections there. We 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 asked, um, you know, do you consider the BDS movement anti-Semitic? And the the the, the categories were mostly anti-Semitic, some anti-Semitic supporters, not anti-Semitic, and don't know. Those were the, the categories we asked. Now we only asked uh, America, uh, the U.S. general public, and American Jews who said they were familiar. And there there were a, a good number, you know, almost 50% of Americans who really weren't familiar. With, with the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which of course we think is a, the good thing <laughs> um, from the American Jewish Committee perspective. But more American Jews consider uh, the BDS movement anti-Semitic or having anti-Semitic supporters than the general public, but it's not by a lot. So 80% of American Jews said that uh, BDS was mo mostly anti-Semitic or had some anti-Semitic supporters, and 62% of the American public uh, said said that as well. What I'll say that with young people, because I think that's where your question was going, um, is younger Americans, U.S. U.S. adults, so between that 18 and 29 year old category, weren't as familiar with with the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. So I think on college campuses, there's a loud voice that is targeting Jews. But what's unfortunate is I do think there's a and I'm speaking kind of anecdotally here, a, a larger bystander culture, unfortunately, of, of non-Jewish Americans who are not aware of BDS and don't know or not even aware of the term anti-Semitism uh, and who are on campuses and aren't, aren't aware of, of how Jewish students are actually being attacked um, for their belief in Israel's right to exist or because they're a Zionist and they cannot participate now in climate change initiatives or you know women's initiatives because, because of this um, and, and because of the, the strength of the BDS movement on some of these campuses. There's a difference between a movement being anti-Semitic and a movement having, a f having some anti-Semitic supporters. Absolutely. And, and I think I want to go to Dan uh, Elbaum's point about being careful 
with the term. I think there are many supporters of boycott, divestment, sanction movement that I would I would not say they are anti-Semitic. Uh, many of them don't even know the roots of of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, and 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 what Omar Barghouti was thinking in 2005 when it was when it was founded. And when you look at the website, and when you look at what they're saying, and it's about human rights and just, social justice, and you know rights for the Palestinians, for freedom of movement, and all these things that sound so good. And you want to be you want to be with like the, that those movements in college. You want to be part of something bigger than yourself. It's speaking this language. We're, we're, we're feelers. We think we don't. We logic is second to emotion, and so it sounds good. And this is where the young people are, you know, are, are getting into it. What I think many of them don't know, and this is where I think the foundations of the movement actually are anti-Semitic, is because um, with the right of, of return and then denying Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state, um, basically saying that you know Israel should no longer exist as as, as a Jewish state, which we see as as a form of, of anti-Semitism, but the supporters themselves might not recognize that those foundational pieces. This question comes to us via Twitter. Anti-Semitism is deplorable. Do you think this term refers to bigotry against Arab people and Arab Americans who are also Semitic as well as Jewish people? Dan Albaum, can I go for this one? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, Holly gets very excited by the origins of the term. but uh, I'll, I'll chime in if I need to, but I, I will defer to you, Holly. Thanks for asking. Chime in. I'm really glad this question was asked because even um, last year, I was at a, a, a consulate of Egypt event in Los Angeles, and the same thing happened. You know, we're, we're combating uh, an Egyptian um, a deputy came up to me and said, you know, we're Semitic, too. So we're countering anti-Semitism. We want to do it because it's 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 helping, you know, our people as well. And, you know, I kind of smiled and gave him a really slight history lesson, but then let it be. Um, but so the term anti-Semitism itself um, actually was kind of invented by a self-proclaimed anti-Semite in, in Germany in the 19th century. And it was used in order to separate it from what was used in the past. Before it was called Jew hatred or Judenhass in German. And this new term was antisemitismus or antisemitism, no hyphen. Um, and it was in reference to just Jews. Uh, it was to keep Jews out of certain businesses, to keep them out of, you know, certain universities, classes. It was it was a, basically a German reaction against Jewish emancipation. Semitic, Semite, the word Semite has an earlier origin, and Semitic, it refers to languages. And so uh, Semitic refers to Arabic, the language. It refers to Hebrew, the language. It refers to Amharic. And so you have Ethiopians and Israelis and, and Arabs being Semitic people or, or Semites, meaning that they speak that language. But the term itself, anti-Semitism, the, the inventor of the term was referring to Jews as a race, as something other, as something different. And it was only in reference to Jews. And so when we use the term, which is why I emphasize that it should not be hyphenated, there is no Semitism to be anti. It should be one word, uniform, keep it together. Uh, it's just in reference to Jews. Okay, uh, it is a confusing term and I'm glad you <laughs> it unpacked it for us. Um, <laughs> The, another question uh, we have here, the, um, what should be done? After seeing these survey results, what can AJC and others do to address these trends? Dan Elbaum, let's start with you. Look, it starts, it's, this is not a cliche for, for us. It, it starts with awareness. It starts with knowledge. Um, we need to get this survey out to as many people as possible. That's why we were so thrilled that you did agree to, to host us on the show. We, we, we need not only the Jewish community know about this, but just very strategically and very much from an advocacy perspective, we have asked our 24 regional offices across the U.S. to connect with uh, uh, African-American leadership, to connect with religious leadership, Latino leadership, 
we want to get this information to, into as many hands as possible and talk about it. There is certain pieces of legislation we're supportive of, the No Hate Act, which is against hate crimes, other things like that. Jews remain the most victimized religious group and the second most victimized group by hate crimes in our country, other than uh, African-Americans. But more than passing laws, this is a battle for the hearts and minds of Americans. And I think, as, as Holly very eloquently stated, what's at stake is far more simply than the fate of the Jews. It really is, in many ways, the fate of our society. And it really starts with us to have these conversations, to talk about these types of things, and, and to learn more about them in, in a very honest and open way. Holly Huffnagel, as we as, uh, turn to you to answer that question as well, I'm reminded that um, while I, met, I said earlier that we sort of live in a bubble here in Cleveland, we have not been immune from uh, anti-Semitic attacks, and there have been there have been a few in recent in recent years, very close by, very you know you know within you know inside of Cuyahoga County. Um, what can ordinary Jew, ordinary people, Jews and non-Jews, people do in their own lives? I think it's, I mean, again, I don't want to sound cliche, but it's so important just to speak up and speak out. I think often, you know, sometimes the Jewish community feels like the onus is on them to, to push back against the hatred. And I think it's, that's where non-Jews come in. And when, when there's an anti-Semitic incident or there's a swastika painted on a school or something, have the, the, the non-Jewish community kind of rally around uh, the Jewish community. I think that's, that's so important. Um, and it's important for at least a couple of reasons. One, I, what I don't want to happen and something that has happened and is happening in Europe is, is kind of the normalization of anti-Semitism where, um, where, where Jews might not be reporting it because they don't think anything's going to change or um, it's not or, or that is kind of like, that's kind of like the resignation in the fight, or it's becoming normalized because um, they don't think it's serious enough. And we can't ever let that get to that level. We need to make sure that all forms of anti-Semitism are, are serious. They should be pushed back against and really create that civil society mechanism that if someone says something anti-Semitic, they're a social pariah. We ostracize them. The United States, you know, for, for our First Amendment, we actually have, to, because of that, we have such a strong, robust civil society to push back. And I think we really need to leverage that um, maybe now more than, more than ever going forward. Uh, otherwise, I agree with what Dan said, you know, defining anti-Semitism, education, building those coalitions, and, and working on better reporting and, and better data collection to, to hopefully lower these levels. You know, the, the, the piece of this that has to do with public education, I think, is uh, really important in the fact that there are so many Americans who don't know what the Holocaust is or was is um, just sort of shocking. What is the AJC doing right now in terms of promoting uh, Holocaust education? So there's many states which have mandatory Holocaust education. We are part of advocacy efforts to get, expand that to all 50 states across the nation. We've worked on educational materials. We certainly talk to different audiences and have performed various trainings. It, it, it is scary. It's something that, you know, that, that I feel in, in a very personal way about, about and, I, and I know Holly does too, about learning those lessons of the past. Um, and look, it, it was to some extent inevitable with the passage of time, with the receding of the ranks of Holocaust survivors. We are reaching that inflection point where if we are not able to solidify these types of laws and really make that stand, it, the Holocaust at least has the potential to be less in the American consciousness than it was when we were growing up. Well, I'll just add one positive thing to what Dan just said. Um, our survey asked the question, you know, do you think the Holocaust is important to be taught in school, in middle school and high school? And even for Americans who didn't know about the Holocaust, we still found that 90%, 9 in 10 Americans, not just Jewish Americans, but U.S. adults, 
believe that it was important, either very important or somewhat important. And that's, I think that's something to hold on to. I don't know if any other country in the world with general, general population would have that high of a percentage of the general public wanting the Holocaust to be taught in schools. And so I think that's where we can jump from um, and encourage it to be taught uh, United States-wide. Be worth mentioning too the existence of uh, organizations that work both locally here in Cleveland and nationally, such as uh, Facing History and Ourselves, which has done a great job um, many times to helping to provide resources to uh, to educators in teaching this. Dan Elbaum is uh, chief advocacy officer at the AJC. Holly Huffnagel, his his colleague, is U.S. director for combating anti-Semitism at the AJC. Thank you both so much for your work and for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Our forum today is the David Ralph Hertz Memorial Forum on Civil Liberties. Mr. Hertz was a lawyer, a judge, and community leader in Cleveland for more than 60 years, joining the City Club in 1923 and active in the ACLU, representing that organization in a number of civil civil liberties cases in Cleveland. His grandson, David Hertz, is also a longtime member of the City Club. Thanks also to members, sponsors, donors, and others who support our mission to create conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. You can find out more and join them at our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. I want to mention that in September, we launched a new video series called Democracy Unchained. The eighth episode was released last night. We provide some analysis of the election and discuss some ongoing threats, including the ongoing threat of white supremacy. Dr. Kathleen Ballou of the University of Chicago Citizen University co-founder Eric Liu, Ball State University, and former Clevelander Dr. Jeffrey Mearns all spoke. I hope you can check it out. It's at democracyunchained.io. I'm Dan Malthrop. Stay strong. Stay healthy. Please wash your hands. Thank you for wearing a mask and keeping your distance. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.